Lord willing, we are there. Come through? Okay, good. Praise God. Wasn't eating anything sugary, but it was all that. Praise God. Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon. This morning, we're uh, going to find ourselves with our, with our brother, Izzy, and uh, we're going to continue on here. Um, we're still in those areas where we're talking about judgment, but there's a little bit uh, uh, more to the, to the judgment than just the judgment, and uh, so we don't have to distress, because that's all we're going to focus on. Um, I want to back up a little bit and, and actually start in 24 when we do jump in here, and we'll do we'll cover 24 through 30. But um, you know, one of the things that uh, we're going to be reading here is I, I titled today's message "Outsourcing Justice." Um, outsourcing is a is a thing, <laughs> as many of us know, and unfortunately, it's cost a lot of uh, jobs because you're able to do it so much cheaper, and it's questionable whether it's. Uh, uh, legitimate or not, but uh, even God here in His uh, judgments against His people and the uh, the judgments that He came. Remember, He's indicted them. He's He's called them out. He said, "Woe to you that practice these things." They would have hear, heard, and hopefully would have known. But unfortunately, one of the costs of sin is the hardness of heart, and that's one of the things that happened. Even as God's people, um, just just uh, this just a couple days ago, I read another distressing uh, um, announcement, if you will. Some guy he writes children's books that are supposedly Christian, married, has four kids, and yeah, many of you are going oh, already, and uh, he's just gone the way of the world, and uh, you know. Doesn't want to be married anymore because he he just because he's homosexual and he wants to you know he wants to bless God in that life that life and that's that's where we're at um, you know there's there's so many things that are going on in the world today um, many of the things that we see this chaos and uh, the violence and all this stuff it's just shipped in from all over the all over the country, and people flying all over the place. It's an orchestrated deal. But it's outsourced. It's outside of, of, of uh, the places that, where these things are happening. And they, they bring in these people who are quick and willing and so lovingly so. they lustful almost, uh, shedding blood and, and the rioting and just, just spewing their this... Um, rage that they've been propagandized with, and they have no place to to express it except in the streets and doing what they do. I'm I'm thankful that uh, I'm seeing some videos where some of the police forces have started to be police again, and they're saying enough. That's pretty, you know. It's like I don't like to see anybody get beat down or anything, but I'm glad to see that there's justice being started to come back and people come into their senses. But God. In the same way, when justice is needed, it is meted by him. And in the cases of the children of Israel, he outsourced it. And it wasn't something that was just current to that time. It wasn't something that was just um, existent in their, their uh, um, reality. It was something that he foretold that he would do in, in Deuteronomy. And so... When we look at these passages, the one thing that I wanted to do, uh, to remind us is uh, I'm glad that we're coming to chapter six. We're going through some uh, two or three chapters, um, maybe even four chapters, where there's some really exciting stuff, some some really good things that we can take our minds for the moment and not focus so much on the judgment. Although there is going to be that, but there's also some really good news and really amazing things. Um, but here we see. In Isaiah uh, 24, if you remember from last week, after all the woes, in verse 24, God um, has Isaiah right there for um, everything that's come before that. This is this is what's going to happen because of all that. This, and um, so we'll continue in the justice and the and the curses 
that the people of God had called down on themselves, essentially. He'd warned them. And remember, it wasn't so much just the fact that they were um, disobedient and rebellious, because they were. It's that in the practice of the idolatry, of the adulteries, and all the different things, their hearts had become calloused and hard. And you can't even hear the warnings anymore when you get to that point. There's no more conviction that you can be convicted with because your heart is so hard. And they had become this way, and so they had essentially called down this justice that was about to be um, served on them um, themselves. It was by their own doing. It was by their own rebellious hearts. Uh, They're at this point and also in the future indifferent towards the things of God. Just like this man that I mentioned that uh, is abandoning his wife and kids. And you know, the sad thing is, um, it's almost like that situation in Corinthians where Paul was rebuking the church and, and saying, you know, even the even the lost, even pagans don't practice this kind of stuff. In reading that, that uh, um, sad message to the world that he would rather practice his homosexuality and break up his marriage. What was sad was the way that the wife responded. And it was almost like she was totally in favor of it. Oh, we're best friends and blah, blah, blah. I wish she would have been, pardon the expression, I wish she would have been mad as hell and rebuked him publicly. Because that's what he needs. And it's like that passage in, in, in Corinthians where Paul's saying, why are you guys, I mean, you guys are, are, aren't doing anything. You're not rebuking. You're not reproving. You're not doing anything that you're supposed to. There's no discipline. You're actually celebrating this as if it's something good, like it's super hyper grace. And, but the people had gotten so hardened here in Isaiah. Um, they were indifferent towards the things of God. They had become callous and hardened. They did not and could not any longer respond to the conviction of God. He directly, through the prophet, calls out their crimes against his love, against his mercy, against his loving care for them, his law and his commandments, and are in full submission to the power of the demonic. And this, they, at this time, were doing willingly. They're under the power of these demonic Entities. And that's what Paul taught. Like they weren't just practicing idolatry. You're worshiping demons. And that's what was going on. They're so hardened. They were so lost. They were so blind. Um, so they're willingly under the power of these demonic entities. And, and in Deuteronomy 28 verses 47. We'll spend a moment there. Um, and I would recommend that you guys read that. If you, were, um, if you remember that's. That's where God's calling out the curses and the, the blessings. And he spent so much more time on the curses. And this is specifically what he was saying that he would do. He would have to. God is holy. God is just. He's righteous. He must mete out justice. It has to be done. But in all these several months that we've been in, uh, in Isaiah... In talking about all these judgments, um, one of the things that, that I've uh, uh, kind of failed to do and, and wanted to do this morning is to remind you that God is just and He's righteous and He's holy. But He's also love and forgiveness, kindness and mercy. And when God has to pour out His justice on His people, He's not doing it. Like I said last week, God is holy and just. He's not mean. And He's not um, capricious. He's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that quality, God is not just those things. He's also loving and kind. And He disciplines those whom He loves. He loves so much that He must discipline when we're in rebellion. When we're in sin. He has to. So he doesn't let people get away with it because he loves too much. He loves too much to let that uh, allow that to happen. So God, through the if you remember in Deuteronomy, God through the prophet Moses announces the curses, which include the invasions of foreigners, 
the outsourcing of justice. And these foreigners, they will be vicious. They will be cruel. They will be heartless and unrelenting. Skilled in warfare and the machinations of war. Who will sweep in the justice of God upon them. They will bring in God, as it says here in Isaiah, whistling to the nations to do his bidding. You know, it was Martin Luther when, uh, at the time in the, in the 1500s where he said, you know, the, the, the uh, Turkish hordes that were invading everywhere and doing all their mayhem and, and uh, murder and pillaging and so on and so forth, he speculated, he says, perhaps they're called by God even against his church because we had gone so far astray from his word. And now we were doing and uh, uh, we were practicing the, the uh, traditions of men and holding them up higher than even the word of God. So he speculated, maybe this is God's judgment. You just don't know. God knows for sure. And one of the things that sometimes we lose sight of how many of us believe that God is good? We could all we could raise double hands for that one, right? We could raise the roof on that one. But sometimes, even in the midst of, of uh, when we're seemingly being disciplined, we we look at that and we um, it's hard. And sometimes, even in the midst of it, sometimes we think it's harsh. And even sometimes on the outside, people looking in, like, "Wow, man, this is harsh. God is just harsh. He's not. He's good." Even in that, He's good. And everything that He does is good. When He pours out His justice, it's good. When He pours out a judgment, it's good. Everything that He does is absolutely good. It always has the right intent. It always has the right effect. And it always does exactly what God intended. Sometimes we forget that. That in God, we have His goodness in everything that He does. Even when there's seemingly evil things. And it's hard for us to grapple with some of those things when we think about some of the atrocities that we've seen over the ages that have happened. But God is good. And He calls, in this case, He's going to call in those, those people who are um, heartless and relentless. He will sweep in, the, they will bring in and sweep in justice, uh, the justice of God to uphold His name, to uphold His holiness. God will use them. And why? Why does God do, do this? Why does He find it necessary to unleash His justice? Because that's exactly what He told them He would do. He has to do what He says. He's true to who He is. And so we see this, and uh, we, um, when we look at this, we have to remember those things, that God is only doing what He told them He would do. And because of the consequences of their sin. So let's read this real quick, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into here. So starting in verse 24, all the woes that God has called upon them, and then he says in verse 24, he says, Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses on, into the flame, so their root became like rot, and their blossom blows, the blossom blow away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against His people, and He has stretched out His hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and, they, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. And then those horrific words, For all this, His anger is not spent, and His hand is still stretched out. And like I said last week, in this picture, it's not the hand stretched out in compassion and mercy. It's the hand of wrath. Oftentimes we forget that He is a God of wrath. Verse 26, He says, He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. Here's one of these places where that rich language takes us and causes us to understand, are they literally from the ends of the earth? No. They're from far away. 
God's going to use outside people. He's going to use outside sources to sweep in his justice, to clean his house. Verse 27, he says, And behold, it will come with speed, swiftly. Their heads are going to spin. It's coming so fast. No one in it is weary or stumbles. It's talking about these hordes that he's going to whistle in. He says, None slumbers or sleep, nor is it the uh, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. These guys are prepared. They're super sharp. They're trained. They don't sleep and slumber. You know what this tells me? There's a supernatural thing going on here. There's a supernatural energy and power and strength. God will do this. It says in verse 28, its arrows are sharp and it, all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness. It roars like young lion. It growls as it seizes its prey. And it carries it off with no one to deliver. And it shall growl over it in that day. Like the roaring of the sea, if one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. It's a pretty dark and dreary thing. And maybe you're wondering, what good can come out of this? Well, remember, God does this because He loves. He loves them too much to let them get away with it. To let them get away with their adultery. He steps in. I love that God's not that much of a gentleman. I know a lot of people say that. God's a gentleman. He would never step in on you and do whatever. Like, well, he's a sovereign king. He do as he pleases. He does as he pleases. And if he desires to do this, who's going to say, no, God, you can't do this. I won't allow it. That's a funny thing to think about. People think that way. God, I'll allow you to do this. and Not that, but this. Um, he calls in. He brings in these things. And, he's, and it says that you look to the land and there's nothing but darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by it. This is a pretty, by its clouds, it's pretty dreary looking. There's nothing but oppression. Darkness, death, mayhem, chaos. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Things that are going on in our, in our crazy world. And it's not just happening in our country. It's, it's universal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you, Lord, in all these things that uh, you love us and you discipline those whom you love. And you love us so much, it's just beyond what we can think or imagine. How many things have you withheld from us because you love us? And Lord, I thank you that you are the God who is um, sovereign, who sees all things, who knows all things, and who is all powerful. That you uh, are the one who's in charge of this, and when you call in your justice, it, it is just, it is right, it is good. I thank you that you love your people too much to let them get away with things too far. And how frightening it is to think that you will allow us to go to depths that we never intended. But still there you are at the end of it. Hand held out. Not in justice or in judgment. In compassion. In mercy. In grace. I thank you that you are the God who is just and holy and righteous, but you're also the God who is love, kindness, compassion, patience, long-suffering, and the God who forgives. We thank you for all these things and many more things. Pray that you would open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these truths. Help us to see you more clearly, because your wrath right now is withheld by the dam of grace that withholds an ocean of wrath. And we thank you that that dam is strong and it has no fissures in it. And that one day, that grace will be removed. And one day that wrath will be unleashed, unrelenting. Thank you, Lord. 
you help us to see on this side that we need you, that we can call upon you, that we can trust you and receive Christ. Thank you for all these things and more. Help us, open us up, Lord, that your spirit teach us in accordance with your word. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So verses 26 to 30, this is a description of the Assyrian army. It closely matches its portrayal in ancient Assyrian reliefs. They were cruel people. They were the ones who would stack bodies and put them on stakes. And they would flay bodies open. So that uh, those who didn't suffer such things could be harmed mentally, psychologically. They did things. They, they would decapitate people and stack the skulls there by the bodies just to let people know that this is the way that they are. I want to read a little bit about the who were the Assyrians. These are the people that God was talking about who he was whistling in. Who were the Assyrians in the Bible? So it's a little bit of history time. Didn't think you were going to know you didn't think you were going to come to a history lesson, but here we go. Who are the Assyrians in the Bible? Well, the answer is this. The Assyrians were the inhabitants of a country that became a mighty empire, dominating the biblical Middle East from the 9th to the 7th century B.C. They conquered an area that compromises what is now Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. In the 7th century B.C., Assyria occupied and controlled the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh, one of the greatest cities of the ancient times. Excavations in Mesopotamia have confirmed the Bible description. Imagine that. Um, that it took three days' journey to go around this city, the Assyrians were a fierce, cruel nation who showed little mercy to those who who they conquered. The Assyrians were a thorn in the side of Israel beginning in 733 B.C. under King Tilgath-Pileser. Assyria took the northern kingdom's land and carried the inhabitants into exile. This you'll see in uh, excuse me, 2 Kings 15. You can read about that. I think I put some of those references in your uh, bulletins. Um, later, beginning in 721, the Assyrian king Shalmaneser besieged Israel's capital, Samaria. Remember, they had split up into two kingdoms. So they'd gone into Israel, where Samaria was the capital, and it fell three years later. That we'll read a little bit in 2 Kings. This event fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, where we're talking about right now, in the very chapter that we're in, um, that God would use Assyria as the rod of his anger. You can read that in Isaiah 10. That is, the Assyrian Empire was implementing God's judgment against the idolatrous Israelites. The sovereign God takes full credit as a source of Assyria's authority. That's why I said when it seems to be indicating that there's a supernatural, uh, there's a supernatural kind of strength and energy that they seem to have where they don't tire or get weary. Um, the secular history records that in 703 B.C. Assyria under King Sennacherib um, suppressed a major Chaldean challenge. Given the, the Assyrian uh, threat against Israel, it is understandable that the prophet Jonah did not want to travel to, Mount, to Nineveh. You remember from our study, those of you who attended the study of Jonah, that was one of the things, that was one of the reasons probably why Jonah just despised this. They had a history. And he wanted them to get their up and coming. The crazy thing is, is even in the story of Jonah, even um, there was a time when Assyria did get their up and coming, and God said, I will hold you accountable. It's one of the things we need to understand. When God uses these, these, uh, these different people, he doesn't just let them go crazy. He says, I'm going to hold you accountable for those things that you do that I didn't tell you to do. You go far beyond that, you'll be held accountable. So there is that, um, that uh, 
um, their will to do that which God has not called them to do. Um, in, uh, let's see, and after Je hearing Jonah's message, the king of Assyria and the entire city of, of Nineveh repented. Remember, Jonah said, turn or burn. <laughs> kind of what he said. He said, repent. And all the way from the king to everybody else, they all did. Um, the greatest revival ever. The greatest uh, 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 act of uh, evangelism that we know. So far as we know. Um, the grace of God was extended even to the Assyrians. In the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign in uh, 701 B.C., the Assyrians under Sennacherib took 46 of Judah's fortified cities. This you'll find in Isaiah. We'll get there one day. Isaiah 36, maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> we'll see. Then they laid siege to Jerusalem. The Assyrian king engraved upon his, his uh, steel that he had the king of Judah caught like a caged bird in his own country. However, even though um, Sennacherib's uh, army occupied Judah up to the very doorstep of Jerusalem, and even though his emissary, uh, Rabshakeh, that's a cool name, Rabshakeh, um, boasted against God, if you remember that story. And now it's almost like the uh, guys that were on the wall, they kind of enticed him, and in his pride, he kind of challenged God. He found out one thing. You don't tell him stuff. And Hezekiah, um, and Assyria was rebuffed. Hezekiah prayed. God promised that the Assyrians would never set foot inside the city. God slew 185,000 Assyrians that night. Um, the forces in one night. And Sennacherib returned to Nineveh where he was slain by his own sons as he worshipped his own god, Nisrosh. That's how God works. He holds people accountable. In 612 B.C., Nineveh was besieged by an alliance of the Medes, the Babylonians, and the Scythians. And the city was so completely destroyed that even its location was forgotten until British um, archaeologists uh, Sir uh, Austin Laird began uncovering it in the 19th century. So all of those years went by before it was remembered. Thus, the Babylonian Empire ascended. Assyria dropped off the pages of history. Just like that. So in uh, Isaiah, let me read from Isaiah, chapter 10, verses 5 through 19. This is what Isaiah was recorded for us. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the street. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish, and Hamath like Arpad, and Samaria like Damascus? As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has, has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I, you notice how many eyes there are all of a sudden? This is the king. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants, and my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there was not one that slapped its wings or opened its beak or its hurt. That's pretty boastful. Pretty arrogant. 
Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? I love God. I love God and his, uh, he uh, gets sarcastic sometimes. I love that. So he asks that question. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. Those ones who were tireless. Those ones who didn't need any rest. Those ones who were seemingly just empowered to just continue to destroy and cause mayhem and so on and so forth. He says, this wasting disease, it will bring down even the stout warriors. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And a light of Israel, and the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write the thing. God's going to deal with them in his justice. So they don't get away with things that uh, they would otherwise have gotten away with. When God calls for justice, calls people to do justice, he means exactly that. Not to extend it beyond what it's not supposed to be. Call to justice, that's it. They had gotten proud in their heart as we read. And they didn't even give God the credit for all that they had done. So, going back to Isaiah, verse 26, he will also lift up a standard to the distant nation. We've read about that standard, the Assyrians. And the standards are flags. If you uh, know anything about uh, military things, um, one of the things that the Navy, especially on their ships, they would have flags with, with all different kinds of symbols on them. And they were trained to know what those were. So when a certain flag would go up in the middle of a war, in a battle, the people that saw it knew what message was being conveyed. That's the idea. There's a standard that's being waved here to uh, and end wars. Um, if you remember from the, uh, 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 maybe I quote from, from that too much, but I do like the series. From the Lord of the Rings and even from The Hobbit, if you remember in the, in the movie, they showed where, where the bad guys were using these standards for the different, Things that they were going to do in battle. They'd raise one battle, one banner, and part of the army would do what they were trained to do. And then they'd raise another one, and the other part of the army would do something different. That's the idea that's being here, the uh, being raised here is this standard is being raised, and it's being raised to a distant nation. And we'll whistle for it from the ends of the earth. Again, it's just words that God, uh, the way that God's putting this is language that He's using it from far away. And behold, it will come with speed and swiftly, which is possibly why he's making the, the contrast there. He's going to come from a far distant land, but he's going to come so fast and swift, you're not going to know what happened. Um, the signal flag, it's uh, like a commander in battle. The Lord summons the nations to execute his judgment. The nations are far off. These would be Syria, Syria and, Bob and Babylon. Assyria, Assyria, and Babylon. The imperial Assyrian army was composed of mercenaries hired from all over the Assyrian Empire. So where do we read about uh, this uh, event? Well, in 2 Kings verses, or, excuse me, chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. Here's where we read about these things. Um, this, this is recorded for us, and it says, Now in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of uh, Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of the three years, they captured it. And in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was captured. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria. 
and put them in Chala and on the harbor and the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord of their God but transgressed his covenant even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They would neither listen nor do it. This is why God unleashes his justice. He told them he would. Um, I want to read really, uh, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 28, verses 45, just three quick uh, uh, verses here. Deuteronomy 28, 45 through 48. He says, so all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and on your descendants. How long? Forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. That's pretty powerful. That's what he's calling. That's the price of disobedience. That's why God outsourced his justice. He called them into being because he said, this is what I'm going to do. He prophesied through Moses and told them, this is what's going to happen. He's warning them. And he does warn over and over and over again. He continually warns. And we're hardened of heart. Our natures are so fallen. Shows more than anything in Scripture the depravity of man. Right? Even with all this stuff being poured out, they still won't turn to him. What does that say about a people? They won't turn to the God, the one who can deliver them. I mean, how dead do you have to be? You have to be totally dead in your trespasses. Verse 27 uh, through 29, he says, No one in it is weary and stumbles. This is the army that he's calling. This is the people. These are the foreigners. He says, None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone. Um, that is the idea of readiness. They're ready for war. There's that in that movie and that book series, The Hobbit, in the Return of the Kings. Really, there's that scene in the in the movie and that that place in the book where um, Aragorn, the the would-be king. The one who would come, the return of the king, the kind of the Christ-like figure that would come up and be the king. And even in the storybook, it says that he will have healing in his wings. It's a very Christ-like picture. And he uh, is in battle. And then he is, uh, gets caught up with this, with this, uh, um, this org, this orc, and there gets tumbled over into this long, off of this long cliff, high cliff, and he's presumed dead. And then he shows up, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's like he comes back from Lot and dead. And he's there, and he's giving hope to the people. And at one time, he says in his, his uh, getting back to Helm's Deep, he says that in part of the way, he saw an army. He said it was immense. At least 10,000 strong. An army bred for one purpose. To destroy the world of men. And that's the idea that, that God is bringing upon the, those people. His people right there and there. This army is bred to destroy. They're supposed to just pour out their that. Uh, so their, their belt, there's nothing undone. It, they're ready continually. The sandal strap is not broken. That was common. They had sandal type shoes that they would wear. And in this case, they had them constructed so that they wouldn't break. Kind of reminiscent of 
40 years of wandering and their shoes didn't wear out. Right? That's why I said it seems like there's something supernatural that's going on here that is kind of not spoken of directly, but it seems like there's some of that going on. Uh, Verse 28, he says, its arrows are sharp and all the bows are bent. They're ready. They're crouching. They're, They're ready to attack at all times. They're alert. They're sober. They're primed for war. Um... And the horses, the hoofs of the of its horses seem like flint, and the chariots, wheels like a whirlwind, coming so fast. It would be terrifying. There would be like the equivalent of today of these huge tanks that come, and and the, the tanks that we have today, as opposed to those in World War II, miles apart. These things are fast. They're so much faster and so much more powerful. And so many more weapons that they have. And it's just that same idea that all these things are coming so fast and there's nothing they can do. In verse 29, he says it's roaring like a lioness. And it roars like young lions. I don't know if you've ever watched any of those uh, um, Nat Geo or some of those other wildlife TV shows where you see the animals, the, the lions when they're hunting and how they do that. Part of their roar is to roar to one another so that they signal one another with different types of... It's almost like their own language. And part of it is also to terrify their prey. Because you hear that and you freeze. That's the idea here. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes prey, almost like, gotcha. And there's nothing you can do except die and be devoured. That's kind of the picture that it's here. That's what was going to happen. And then it carries it off with no one to deliver. Um, that's a pretty awful picture of things that are going to happen to the, uh, to the Israelites. And because of their disobedience, and it wasn't just disobedience. In this case, it had become rebellion. And it had become purposeful rebellion. They were now not interested in anything that God had for them or did for them. And in verse 30, and it says, And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. This isn't just a normal sea. This is like a sea that is being tossed and turned in the middle of a storm where the huge waves come. And they crash down, and it sounds like roaring. It's going to just flood them. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened. That's a pretty sad thing. Remember what we read last week, what Jesus said. If the light in the body is dark, how great is that? This was, uh, the darkness is a metaphor for depression, for alienation, judgment. It teaches that all who twist justice by living in darkness will suffer the darkness of God's judgment. By contrast, the light of God will dawn on the needy. So there is a contrast to that. God will pour out His justice. Again, like I said in the in the prayer, uh, and I can't. I wish I could remember who to give the credit to. I can't remember what uh, man of God said it, but he he said that the grace, God's grace, is the dam which withholds an ocean of God's wrath. And like I said, one day that grace will be lifted, and His wrath will be poured out. Thank God that He has shown us that grace and that we know that. And so, by contrast, that light of God will dawn. Even though it seems like everything's dark, it will dawn on the needy. Those who trust in Him, those who depend on Him, those who need God. And the Lord is sovereign over the darkness and light. We know that from Isaiah 45, 7. The distress, the Hebrew word means sorrow. 
There's sorrow. There's narrowness. God delivers His own from such confinement. And there's hope. Even though here it ends so abruptly with just the way it's going to be. Well, we know that God is a God of love and we know that God is also, when He does things and He disciplines, He does it because it's the ultimate, the ultimate reason why is because of His love. Because He loves. He loves His people so much He won't let us get away with it. In Jeremiah 31, verses 2 through 4, this is what we read. God says that He's a jealous God. And He's jealous like a spouse for their spouse, for a husband for his wife, and a wife for her husband. When they find out that there's the possibility or there's this idea that there's some attention being given somewhere else, and you know about it, generally you'll, something inside of you will react. Okay, This is the idea here, but uh, in Jeremiah 31, verses 2 through 4, it says this. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. See, God loves, and His justice will be poured out, but this is behind it all, His love. And he, I love the fact that we have such a personal God that He proclaims it. He doesn't hide it. You know, those people that really honestly believe that the God of the Old Testament was this, was this vindictive, um, capricious, mean-spirited, vengeful, and judgmental God. And they say that the God of the New Testament seems to be different. Like, no, it's the same exact God. It's the very same. And we'll see that. But here you have the God of the Old Testament, who is the God of the New Testament. And he's proclaiming this pouring out this love, this language. Gods that, false gods that people worship don't speak this way. There's no way that you can know what God you're dealing with. Who He's going to be. Because they are capricious, the false gods. This God is speaking. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. I mean, the fact that God speaks in, in such terms is amazing. In Malachi, verse uh, uh, one, or excuse me, chapter one, verses one through five, this is again God speaking the, through the uh, prophet uh, Malachi, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, "How have you loved us?" Imagine that. Imagine being in a place where you would have actually ask God, "How have you loved me?" You got, you got up out of bed this morning, didn't you? You got, yeah. You got a breath. You're breathing, aren't you? How have you loved us, they say. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I've loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains of desolation and appointed uh, his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God's saying, I'm going to pour out justice on them and not you in this case. Whatever they try to do, I'm going to tear it down and I'm going to make sure that you see this so that you remember. God speaks. He loves in this way. He's a personal God. And we talked about Wednesday night a little bit about 
about when God created, He created man in His image. This is one of the ways that we can understand what that image is. It's not a literal physical body image. It's the attributes that are communicable. Those things that, that are passed to us. Will. Thought. Emotion. Compassion. All these things that are passed, that are part of what God's character is, that are passed to us. There are those things which He will not and cannot share because He would cease to be the God that we know. Those are strictly His own characteristics. And in, in Hosea, we have the same kind of language. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, it says this, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet, it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. See, God works within the midst of His people even when they don't know it. And it's for your good if you belong to Him. God does work all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things, even when they seem terrible. Yes, He says, it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws and bent down and fed them. He condescended. He gave them their sustenance. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refused to turn to me. Their refusal is their loss. The God of the Old Testament is a God of love. He declares it to his people. He does it over and over again. He reminds them. He says, even when you don't realize it, I'm working. I'm healing. The God of the New Testament is the same. Jesus himself said, if you've seen the Father, Philip, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That declaration that the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. That couplet that I like to use. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Here we have the revealing of, the, of God and, and it's just more clear. It's more understandable. It's more graspable. It's something more that we can understand. And in John chapter 16, um, well, before we read that, I wanted to read uh, uh, some out of Psalm 17. Psalm 17, verses 7 through 9, before we go into the New Testament. How does God express this, His love for the people? Well, listen to what it says in Psalm 17, verses 7 through 9. He says, the, the psalmist writes, Wondrously show your loving kindness. You have to know your God pretty well to know that He would even do such a thing and hear such a prayer. He says, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand, for those who rise up against them. And he says this, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. You have to know your God pretty well to know that He would do that. And you have to be understanding that He does love. In Zechariah chapter 2, verses 7-9, through 9, He says this, Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughters of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's how he sees his people. They're the apple of his eye. He says, if someone touches you, they're touching the apple of my eye. That's pretty intense. That's pretty... That, that's, that is very... Um, What's the word that I'm looking for? It's very intimate. That's so intimate. They touch you, they're touching the apple of my eye. That which glitters in my eye, that's who you are. 
And after the glory, he, say, he says, uh, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for the slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 through 12, um, this is what it reads. This is, this is uh, Moses writing this for us, recording these. It says, For the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted inheritance. In a desert land He found Him. In a barren and howling waste, He shielded Him and cared for Him. He guarded Him as the apple of His eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft, the Lord alone led Him. No foreign God was with Him. Jesus speaks in much the same way, which ties the old and the new together. Same God, same love. Jesus expresses this in John chapter 16, verses 26 through 28. He says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I've come forth from the Father. You know, our uh, uh, the Roman Catholics, they, they pray to saints and they pray to Mary. Jesus right here is rebuking that. He's saying you don't have to. He says you can go directly to the Father. He says you don't have to ask me to ask the Father. You ask Him directly. Why? Because the Father Himself loves you. That's overwhelming when we think about it. He says he loves you. He says, because you have loved me and you and have believed that I have come forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. He's there at the right hand of the Father. And it's okay to pray to Jesus. But not as a go-between in that sense. We can pray directly to Him because He is God the Son. In John chapter 15, verses 8 through 11, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to be like those trees that are laden with so much fruit that our, that our branches are just hanging down so that even the most needy can reach that low-hanging fruit. And I don't care what the world says, how oh, that's racist to say that. Don't ask me how. But that's one of those things where they say, oh, you can't say that anymore. I'm going to say it. That's what God wants. He wants us to have low-hanging fruit so the most needy amongst us can partake. He says, the, the Father's glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made full. That's a loving God. I want this so that you can be full of joy. And it will be made full. Only do what I've commanded. The commandment was what? One thing to love. Two objects of our love are God. Mind. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, all our strength. And love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the commandments that he's speaking of. This is how God ultimately displays his love for his elect. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, God displays His love. He doesn't wait. He steps in. He shows His love. And He changes us. He makes us new. He gives us new hearts. He gives us new minds. He gives us new eyes and new ears. He gives us all these things. Abundantly. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. And not only this, Paul says, but 
We also exult in our tribulations. He gives us tribulations. I don't hear him in amen. Or hallelujah. He says we exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Through what? Through the Holy Spirit. Who, has, who was given to us. Yes. Even in our tribulation. Hallelujah. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His love, His own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. He didn't wait for us to change. Why? Because we can. We can be moral animals. You could be the most moral person in the world. You know, if I was to ask you, um, which one do you think is better? Or is in heaven. Which one do you think deserves heaven? Adolf Hitler? Or Mother Teresa? It's a trick question. Neither one. Right. Neither one. The majority of the people would say, oh yeah, Mother Teresa. By, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. But no. Even she needed a savior. She needed one terrible. There is no good person except Jesus Christ. In um, Let's continue on here in John. Uh, let's see, Romans, uh, finish up here. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's how much God loves. He sent His Son. He bore our sin. He's the great sin bearer. He's the one through whom we can have peace with God. And the only one by whom we can have peace with God. The discipline of the Lord is for His own is hard and at times difficult. And may even seem harsh at times, but it yields great fruit in the lives of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Even when God outsources the hordes for judgment. Remember that there's two sides of judgment. And the two sides are, there's one side of judgment for the pagan unbeliever, the unrepentant sinner. That judgment is damnation, eternal suffering. Eternal punishment. But to the believing ones, to His elect, to the regenerate, judgment has been placed upon Jesus. The cross. Nailed there and faced the wrath due us to whom the stroke was due. But He took it on our behalf. Thus, we are free to love God as we ought. Remember what it said in verse 9 of uh, Romans chapter 5. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. There's two sides of judgment. And you have to ask yourself, which side are you on? Are you on the side of forgiveness? Side of justification? Side of hope? Side of God's love? Or are you on the side of God's wrath? Is that the judgment? We have to be honest with ourselves. The Son, He bore our sin. The crucifixion paid for it. The burial laid it to rest. The resurrection proves it was acceptable and propitiatory in its work. God is now satisfied. His wrath poured out on the sin offering. His justice satisfied. His peace and forgiveness He now offers by grace to any that will repent of their sin. 
So I beseech you, be, receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Him by faith and be saved. Be made new. That's what God gave His Son for. To die on the cross, to be buried, and to raise, be risen again on the third day. Because truly, Christ is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we bless you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who has always been, that you will never change. How wonderful it is to know that you're always the same. And we never have to worry about what mood you're going to be in. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who is never changing. You're not shifting shadows, shifting sands. And you don't keep us on shifting sands. No, you, you place us on solid rock. Even the rock of Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those who have never received you that they would. Open them up, Lord. Convict them of their sins just like you did with us. Help them to know and understand their great need of a Savior. A loving Savior. A loving God who's forgiving and kind and merciful. But yes, he's also full of wrath and justice. And righteousness and holiness. It's because of those things that you have to pour out your justice, even when you call them from afar. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you are the God who's revealed yourself to people like us, that we may know you and love you and seek you and worship you. We pray that you would have your way continually and use us for your namesake, use us for your kingdom's sake. Use us to spread the gospel of truth, of love, mercy. The gospel that is Jesus. For it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen.